0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Neufeld. While we're continuing our series, The Unseen Hand of God. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 to 28, as Dr. Neufeld brings us a message entitled, Serving Foreign Kings.
1: There are times, at least the way I remember them, You know, Christians in both the United States and Canada complain that we're losing our Christian country. And indeed, no doubt, it it has seemed that way. Mark Knoll, an American church historian, has written an excellent pamphlet that's entitled Whatever Happened to Christian Canada? In it, he chronicles the very sudden collapse of Christian influence in Canada, along with some of the political forces that have led to this. Now, as informative as all of that is, I think it misses something. You know, for one, there were years in Canada when the church and the state were inextricably bound to each other. You know, for instance, in the province of Quebec, it was once the case that you couldn't get education or health services or any other government services outside of the Roman Catholic Church. And Mark Knoll chronicles all of that. But what he doesn't chronicle well is what extent the Christianity that once existed was nominal, that is, in name only. He also doesn't chronicle the alarming rate of the liberal Christian takeover of Canada's mainline denominations and how the loss of genuine historic Christianity had already been lost in those churches long before they collapsed. But I mention all of that because there is still an idea out there that things would be better if we could just get a Christian into power, either as president in the U.S. or, I guess to a lesser extent here in Canada, as prime minister— You know, if we had the right political leadership, wouldn't the church do better? At least that's how some of us think. Now, I'm going to come back to that. But before I do, let me introduce you to the Old Testament historical account. You've heard it said that Israel was a theocracy. That is, it was a nation ruled by God. And for that reason, the kings of Israel, they were required to write out their own personal copy of the law, or perhaps only the book of Deuteronomy, and they were to have it in their possession, and they were to read it constantly. They were to keep all the words of the law, and God would hold them and the nation accountable. So it seems ideal, except, of course, the reality of human sin. Israel's first king, Saul, well, he was a disaster. The second king, David, well, it's truly Israel's great king. And even though he sinned, he repented, and he was a man after God's own heart. The third king, Solomon, reigned during a time that can only be described as the greatest period in Israel's dynasty. Never before or after had the nation been that wealthy, the temple to the Lord was built, the borders of the nation seemed to have expanded to the very dimensions that Abraham had been promised by God, and Israel enjoyed a relative peace and security from all the surrounding nations." But of course, all was not well. Solomon married many foreign women in order to form political alliances with powerful nations around him. And each one of these royal wives required that their religion be respected, and so Jerusalem became filled with idolatrous temples. And furthermore, although God had commanded that military in Israel remain restricted to a reasonable size, so that the nation would always have to depend on God, Solomon ignored that command and he filled Israel with Egyptian chariots and weaponized the entire nation. He ground up some of the poor and he introduced a crushing tax load on the nation to pay for everything. And by the time King Solomon died, he died a disillusioned man who had abandoned his God. The nation split after Solomon, it was long overdue. Israel to the north had not one godly king in all her history. And Judah to the south had a mixture of kings, some godly and some profoundly evil, and they condemned their nation to ruin. Now, now remember that history and set it against the wider background of the history of Israel, that is, the entire biblical narrative. So, it seems likely to me that Abram heard the call of God and went to Canaan somewhere around the year 2090 B.C., Abraham then and his family lived in Canaan from 2090 to 1875 when, according to our passage, which we will study today, they moved to Egypt. And that means that the family lived in Canaan as a minority ruled by other local princes and kings for a period of 215 years before Egypt. Now, they had no godly king over them then. Now, as Joseph takes the lead, he moves his family to Egypt, where they will live from 1875 BC to 1446, the year of the Exodus. That's 430 years. That means that for the first 645 years of Israel's existence, they had no political independence. They had no king indeed. They lived as a minority group in a wider culture that often opposed their values, rejected their God forced Israel to live under whatever conditions others set for them. That's important to remember. That is, for the first 645 years. This had been Israel's experience. That's a very long period of time. Contrast that to the years that they had their own king, be that either a good king or a bad one. Well, we know that Saul became king in the year 1051 BC. We also know that the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took them as exiles into Babylon. That was in 586 BC. And so that means that Israel was ruled by their own king for 513 years. That's still a very long period of time, but it's still a shorter period of time than they spent living under the dominion of other peoples. So let me put it another way. If we count the entire history of Israel, that is, the history that's recorded in the Bible, from the call of Abraham in 2090 B.C., let's say we go all the way forward until the year A.D. 70. Well, the Bible gives us a picture of 2,161 years of the history of that nation. And if we allow for the 513 years that Israel had a king, maybe we're going to add to that 80 years when they were self-ruled by what has been called the Hasmonean dynasty. Well, we would say that in those years, they only enjoyed less than 600 years of having a king. But even if we allow for, you know, during the time of Moses and all the way to the reign of Saul, at least they had some semi-self-rule. Well, we can only tack on another 395 years, taking us to a little short of a thousand years. See, this means that for over half of the story of Israel that we find in our Bible, that nation was ruled by someone else. I say all of that because as we come to the end of Genesis 45, Israel enters into her Egyptian experience. It's a time in her history that would last 430 years. Other rulers would determine her destiny Other rulers would determine her economic and social status. Other rulers would either make life good or cruel. Their destiny wasn't in their own hands. But as I've stated, that's not unusual in her history. For more than half of the biblical history, that would be the state of this nation. And even when Israel had so-called self rule For most of those years, they had to pay tribute to more powerful nations around them who totally controlled her destiny. Israel almost never was controlled by godly leaders. All of that to say, those of you who are longing for a Christian nation, would you please just open your eyes for a bit and see that God is determined that his people would flourish while being controlled by other nations. God has always wanted his people to look to him for strength and not depend on some sort of political solution to their problems. Now, during those years when Israel lived in another land, how did they do? Well, consider the counsel of Jeremiah to the captives in Babylon. Here I'm reading Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I send to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So what should you do when you're a foreigner in a foreign land? Well, number one, settle down. And look to make a livelihood in that country. Number two, have children and make sure you don't decrease. Become populous, a real presence in the country. Number three, seek the welfare of that foreign land. Look to do it good. Seek to bless it. Try to advance its economy. Work for political stability. And finally, number four, pray to the Lord constantly that he might bless the nation where you live. You know, I could apply that to Canada and Christians here. And I would say, pray the national anthem. God keep our land glorious and free. Now, having said that, let's also remember that God, at times, has provided for opportunities in the land of exile. In the case of both Joseph, and much later, in the case of Daniel and Babylon, both men were able to rise to very high political office. Their leadership both protected the people of God, but it also blessed the nation where they lived. And so, as we now come to the end of Genesis 45, we need to read the account in just such a way. Israel will move to Egypt, and in so doing, will save herself from starvation. The Pharaoh of Egypt will be their king, and he will direct their future. But they need not fear. God knows how to prosper his people in just such circumstances. He always has. He will do so for us today.
0: Have you been feeling tired, beaten down, and alone? If there's anything that the Bible tells us, it's that prayer is a powerful tool for the follower of Jesus. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is dedicating November to pray specifically for you. If you receive our monthly ministry letter, there's a prayer note inside. You can return to our office and a team member will join you in prayer. Or if you'd rather, you can visit backtothebible.ca prayer and send your prayer request on a special confidential prayer page. Either way, we're praying for you this month. Prayer is critical to the ministry, so we want to share our prayer request with you as well. Together in prayer, God will do great things. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca backslash prayer to let us know how we can partner with you in prayer this month.
1: Genesis 45, verse 16, begins today's narrative and study. The text simply says, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. It's really an amazing passage because, as you might remember from Genesis 43, verse 32, there were serious cultural differences between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. You know, that passage said, The Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And by the time we come to the end of our next chapter, we're going to read that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. And so we should see that from the outset, that this would not be a marriage made in heaven. You know, these two cultural groups would not appreciate each other. And so we can only anticipate that there would be pain just around the corner. But if my calculation is right, that pain doesn't show up for more than 200 years. And the reason is actually quite simple. Pharaoh was pleased with Joseph's brothers. And why shouldn't he be? See, we might remember that in the previous passage. When Joseph first revealed himself to his brothers, he had at that time commanded that they should come to Egypt. Now, of course, no Egyptian official would have been there when Joseph extended the invitation. And besides, even if they had been there, they wouldn't have understood him, for the entire conversation had been conducted in the Hebrew language. But since Pharaoh is over Joseph... Well, how can Joseph be so free to extend an invitation to his brothers without first checking with Pharaoh? Well, the answer has to be that both Joseph and Pharaoh knew exactly the kind of relationship they enjoyed. Pharaoh trusted Joseph, and Joseph, for his part, knew what Pharaoh wanted, so he was free to act. The fact that Pharaoh in Egypt is delighted when Joseph's brothers come, and the fact that they represent a culture that wasn't appreciated in Egypt. Well, that's an indication that political leadership in the land is working to ensure that this experiment is going to work. A relationship of respect between Joseph and Pharaoh is going to ensure this. And here we need to marvel at God's provision. Pharaoh will independently extend hospitality to Joseph's starving family out of love, out of respect for Joseph. And Joseph, for his part, never doubted that this is what Pharaoh would do. So we continue to read verses 70 to 20. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So we notice that Pharaoh has come, I assume to the very place where Joseph is meeting with his brother. And our passage says that he said to Joseph, say to your brothers. See, we're reminded that Joseph is now serving as an interpreter. He's able to communicate his message to them. But now for the first time, The brothers meet Pharaoh of Egypt, and what he says, thats altogether amazing. Get on your animals and go get your father and his household and come to Egypt. Save your people from famine. You'll be coming at my invitation. Second, you're going to want to communicate to your father and to the rest of his family at home that I will arrange that you will be settled in some of the very best farmland that Egypt has to offer. I mean, think of it this way. We know that in Canada and also in the U.S., when the First Nations people were settled onto reserves, those reserves were often not in the best part of the land. The best part of the land was reserved for the people in power. Well, that's how it's always gone throughout the history of the earth. Except here, Pharaoh promises and then keeps his promise that he will provide a reserve, if you will. But this one will be tailor-made to assure their prosperity in Egypt. Well, finally, Pharaoh even goes one step further. You know, like a high-end company to a senior executive, you know, the company in question is going to ensure that the company is going to underwrite all the moving costs. You know, in fact, that's exactly what Pharaoh says. I'm providing the moving trucks. We're going to pack you, but you don't even have to worry about anything. And the wealth that awaits you here, well, it's going to make the stuff you leave behind seem like nothing. By now, I'm sure that Joseph's brothers are staring at one another in amazement. Until a moment ago, they'd been struggling to feed their families. Starvation never seemed far off. That's just changed. God, as we know, sovereignly designs the times in which we live. We don't choose our times, but we do need to learn how to respond to the times which he gives to us. You know, Paul speaks about that most specifically as he was languishing in a prison in Rome. He was writing to the Philippians, and he says in Philippians 4:12 to 13, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I know, I know. I mean, we often think about how to remain thankful when things are tough, you know, when our health fails or when our job goes south, when friends desert us, when even our nation turns against us. But we must also develop a theology of how we should respond and live when God in his infinite wisdom deems that it is best for us, that we should be overwhelmed with plenty. We need to know what it is to live faithfully when the material benefits of this world overflow right onto our plates. When we become wealthy, what then is faithfulness to God? But that is what's happening here. You know, in Proverbs 21, verse 1, Solomon writes, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Yeah, he will. And this king, Pharaoh of Egypt, who might have been the I, while he is Pharaoh credited with bringing Egypt to the peak of its prosperity. And if that's right, he has the prosperity to fulfill his promise to the children of Israel. God, as Solomon would say, is turning his heart like a stream of water to bless the chosen people. So we continue to read Genesis 45, verses 21 to 24. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Well, we might remember that clothing, you know, from the the coat of many colors until now, what has been an important part of the story. It indicates status, position, and instantly Joseph sets out to distinguish his family as the family that has been favored by the most powerful ruler in the then known world. And then, though Joseph chooses to bless Benjamin more than the others, I would have to assume that the brothers understood that it is God himself who determines status and our position in life. And as they go, Joseph warns them not to quarrel. I think this is added because Joseph knows there is still one more very painful thing that these brothers must yet face. Very soon now, it will become clear to Jacob what has happened to Joseph and what the brother's part was in all of that. So we come to the end of the chapter, verses 25 to 28. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die really is a marvelous passage. You know, for the first time, that is, for the first time in 20 years, they can face their father, tell him the truth. And then in the next breath, they can say he's ruler of Egypt. Of course, Joseph's heart becomes numb. He's frozen, seems unable to respond. And when he sees the Egyptian moving equipment, he's revived. Enough, he says. I'm going to go see my son before I die. The story of chapter 45 ends in a blessing. You know, yesterday, when I told the story of my father being reunited with his family after more than 40 years, I could have also told the story of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, and how Reagan's words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. And then Gorbachev's response, well, that grand political event, that event blessed by family in ways I don't even know how to communicate. Well, God has always appointed world leaders to do his work. And for this reason, Christians must never be afraid when they live in a land that is foreign and when they serve foreign kings who do not serve their God. We know that the unseen hand of God directs all things according to his glory and for the good of his people. For that reason, we must not fear and we must continue to put our hope in God. For our God in the end does rule over us and he rules all nations as well.
0: John, thanks for the message. Your title, Serving Foreign Kings. You know, I kept on thinking through the message that, you know, we're in jeopardy of serving foreign kings all the time, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we sure are. You know, leaders come and leaders go, and some of them are benign and some are favorable towards us. And in those time periods, I I know that God's people can give such thanks to God for such a turn of events. But I don't have to go very far to think, you know, even the history of Israel or the history of the New Testament church, that sometimes uh, benign kings can become very difficult kings to serve. Um, I'm always reminded that Paul wrote, you know, Romans 13, about being obedient to the governing authorities when Nero was king in Rome. What a difficult time that was. And yet, God moves the hearts of kings, and my prayer is always, Lord, uh, whoever is in power, may it be such a time that will lead to the advancement of the gospel and the good of your people, and I pray that God answers that prayer.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. (laughs) time is running short and space is now very limited so now's the time to decide to join back to the bible canada laugh again and friends from february 7th to the 16th 2020 on our back to the bible canada southern caribbean cruise sail the seas for nine days aboard royal caribbean's explorer of the seas visit aruba carousel Bonaire, and more specially designed to enjoy all that the cruise line has to offer and be spiritually refreshed and encouraged under the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and special musical guests Shane and Angela Weeb. Be enriched, challenged, laugh, and be encouraged, and enjoy great fellowship. Come on your own or bring your family and friends. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or call us at 1-800-663-2425, but register soon to avoid disappointment. And remember that all the costs associated with ministry vacation events are funded exclusively by the participants, and no ministry resources are used for this purpose.